Won't you open your Bibles this morning to the Gospel of John as you're finding your place? Let me just mention by way of prayer request, uh, Mark Eaton is in the, has been in the hospital the past day and a half, two days, uh, concerning a blood clot, and uh, he's, he's uh, going through some procedures to try to get that broken up and dissolved. Uh, so he's, he's there now, and uh, we'll have another procedure at th- 12 o'clock today. So just pray for him, continue to pray for him, and uh, Vaughn as she's down with him. Uh, and once we know anything or have any updates when, he's, when he'll come home or what's going on, we'll send that out by way of email. Uh, so if you get our church email, just kind of look for that. So pray for them, uh, if you would. And I also want to mention, the, uh, Ben mentioned the men's conference coming up, and um, uh, we extended the late penalty for those of you guys who are wanting to pay it. You'll have to wait till after October the 26th to pay the late penalty. So, um, But that gives you a chance to continue to get on there and get registered. You ought to be registered. If you know you're going, you ought to get on there and take care of that. That's something, this is what you do, right? You just take care of those things. But I also want you to be in prayer as a church for the men's conference, and I'm so thankful that we are a praying church. Uh, so let me just uh, invite you to pray uh, for that as well. And let's just take a moment. I know Lord led us in prayer and Mike led us in prayer, but let me just take a moment and pray for Mark and uh, and the service. Father, we thank you again uh, for your grace to us. God, we want to lift up Mark and Yvonne and pray that you would just uh, work in that uh, work in the hospital, work through the doctors and uh, give them wisdom and, and uh, insight as they uh, seek to take care of this issue with the blood clot. And Lord, we pray for Mark and Yvonne that you would just uh, give them encouragement and, and a, a spirit of trust in you through this whole process. And Lord, we want to commit this men's conference upcoming in a month to you and just pray for your will to be done. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> You have your Bibles open to John chapter 3 this morning, and you find in the middle of this chapter um, one of the most famous verses and beloved verses in all of the Bible, and I'm sure most of you can can just speak it from memory, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life life. Lord willing, we'll look at that verse next week. Uh, This morning, I want us to consider the first part of chapter number three, probably one of uh, the greatest and most neglected doctrines in all of the Bible, and that is the doctrine of the new birth, or uh, the theological term regeneration. Uh, And uh, the story is told of the evangelist George Whitfield, who uh, was approached by a woman at one of his preaching campaigns, and she came to him saying, Mr. Whitfield, why do you continue to say you must be born again? And his response was, Dear woman, because you must be born again. Uh, and as you find in Jesus' words, it is fundamental to our salvation uh, and the grace of God applied to us uh, through the work of the Holy Spirit. One Puritan writer referred to it this way, Repentance is the change of mind. The regeneration is the change of man. Till the first Adam be changed into the second, there is no hope of entering into heaven. We find this teaching uh, given to us in a conversation between a man and Jesus here at the beginning of this. And let me just read this section down to verse 15 for us. You can follow along. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews, This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time in his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. 
Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel and you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness of what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you of earthly things, you do not believe them. How can you believe if I tell you of heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. That is God's inerrant and fallible word to us this morning. We're brought to a conversation uh, between Jesus and a man that John gives to us by the name of Nicodemus. This is not the only time he'll be presented to us. We'll see him later on in the Gospel of John and uh, appearing that uh, he has benefited from this uh, encounter with Jesus. Now let me just give you some facts about him to help us as we navigate through this. Nicodemus is described for us as a Pharisee. Those of you that are familiar with your Bibles and especially the Gospel accounts uh, are reminded that the Pharisees are the uh, oftentimes the enemy, the critics, uh, and the skeptics of Jesus' ministry. Uh, they did not start out that way. They started out as a very conservative sect of Judaism who were, sought to preserve the law and walk after the law of God. And Nicodemus, being one of them, shows that he was a, a very disciplined man, a man with exercising self-control, a very religious man, believing the law and seeking with all of his might to follow after it. The Pharisees were not, no, not only known for their zealousness for the law, they were very zealous for the traditions of the fathers. And basically, that just simply means generations of teachers who come up and said, well, you... You're supposed to keep the Sabbath day holy, so how do you do that? Well, this is how you do that. You're not supposed to, you're not supposed to make clay. Well, Jesus encounters that when he spits in the ground and makes mud and puts it on a guy's eye, and they say, you violated the Lord's day and broken the law of God. And they were very meticulous and very devoted, not only to the law and the Torah, but they were very devoted to the Father's traditions or the traditions uh, that were present during that time. Well, Nicodemus is also mentioned not only in his uh, affiliation as being a Pharisee, but also a ruler of the Jews. <clears throat> it simply means he was part of the Sanhedrin. There were 70 elders or 70 men in Israel who made up the court and the authority of the Jewish nation there in Jerusalem. They would preside over cases that needed to be disputed, exercise authority and punishment save up to death, that was the Romans' job. So Nicodemus was a man of influence. He was a religious man, a very moral man, a very disciplined man. He was, he was sought out as a, as a teacher in Israel. In fact, Jesus refers to him in chapter number 10, or verse number 10, as we saw here, that you are the teacher of Israel. He was not a new convert. He was not like John's disciples where he heard John preach and the and got convicted and decided he would start following God. This was a man who knew the law of God. He knew the, the traditions and the theology. In fact, some suggest maybe he was the go-to man. If you had a problem concerning the Torah, concerning God or theology, go to Nicodemus. He is the teacher of Israel. It is this man uh, that comes to Jesus. We see in verse number 2, uh, by night, and some suggest here this statement John uses may mean more than just simply it was late in the evening. It's showing Nicodemus's own failure to understand fully who Jesus was. But nevertheless, let's be honest, Jesus was a busy man. Surrounded by multitudes and crowds, it would have been hard to sit down and have a meal with, a conversation with, or talk shop with. That's what pastors do, right? You get together and you talk about... You talk about theology and see if they're on your side and all the problems and things like that. You've got a brother in arms, so to speak. We don't know exactly what Nicodemus asked Jesus because he doesn't, he doesn't ask a question. He just simply comes to Jesus seeking some conversation of some sort. Verse number 
2 shows us that as he comes to him, uh, and by the way, wouldn't you have liked to, liked to have been there for the whole conversation? Here is the teacher of Israel and the son of God sitting together having the conversation we're looking over this morning. And what a fascinating thing it would have been there, not only for Jesus' disciples, but for Nicodemus' disciples, which would have probably been with him, or at least his servants. When Nicodemus comes to him by way of night, it would have been a more accessible uh, time to come to him. And as he comes to him, he shows a, a level of respect and honor that his colleagues and the rest of the Pharisees and Sadducees and the Herodians will never pay to him in his entire ministry. Here is the teacher of Israel saying to Jesus, Rabbi, which is saying that, that I recognize and acknowledge you as a fellow teacher, uh, a, a, a contemporary one who is on the same level. This, Nicodemus' problem, though, too, because he sees Jesus in this same level. Paying him respect, uh, referring to him as a rabbi, he says again, We know that you are a teacher that has come from God, for no one can do these signs you do unless God is with you. Not only does he refer to him as teacher in Israel, he comes to him and he says, I recognize God's hand in your ministry. I, I can understand and I can see. I, I'm standing on the outside. I see the signs and wonders you do. And I, I recognize that, that you're from God. You're, you're somebody God has sent. And, and God's hand is in your ministry from what you've done. And that's the very thing John wants us to gather from the whole gospel of John is as looking at the life of Jesus and his deeds played out through this historical narrative account. He's wanting us to come back to the conclusion of seeing Jesus for who he is. One of the things Nicodemus has yet failed to do. But he does see enough to recognize that God's hand is in his ministry. It is interesting. Turn over to chapter number 9. It's the very same lesson that his, his uh, contemporaries, the Pharisees, will receive from a blind man. Chapter number 9. We won't read the whole chapter. The whole account's given to you in chapter number 9. Verse number 29, the leaders are skeptical about this man Jesus we don't know where he's come from verse 29 we know Moses spoke from God but we don't know where Jesus has come from uh, here's the blind man in his response who had just been healed uh, and been uh, now able to see verse 30 the man answered why is this an amazing thing you did not know where he comes from and yet he opened my eyes basically he's saying why is this so hard guys think about what just happened I'm standing right in front of you seeing why is it so hard to figure out where this guy's come from. That's what he's telling the leaders of his day. I guess you don't uh, rebuke the leading religious class. Nevertheless, verse 31, we know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his God, God listens to him. We, we at least know that God's not going to give heed and work through sinners, but only those who do his will and worship him. Never since the world has begun has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. John reiterating what we find in the lips of Nicodemus here through the lips of a blind man, showing the blindness in the nation of Israel. Nicodemus has some sense of God's work, some sense of God's uh, God's movement through the life of Jesus. He may be similar to those servants who saw the miracle of Jesus, but did not see the glory as the disciples did at the wedding feast. But nevertheless, in this opportunity, Jesus uh, not only hears his introduction, but before Nicodemus could ask his question, Jesus confronts him. Now, I don't know what Nicodemus was going to ask. We have some speculation. Maybe he was going to ask to him, Jesus, who are you? Are you the Messiah? Are you Elijah? Are you some other prophet that's supposed to come? That's what they wanted to know of John the Baptist. Uh, but he doesn't get an opportunity to ask him. Instead, what he hears is what he needed to hear and what you and I need to hear today. And that is, you must be born again. You must be 
born again. Verse number three, Jesus responds to Nicodemus's introduction. with a double affirmative statement that's very familiar uh, for those of you who are familiar with your New Testament. Uh, truly, truly, or amen, amen, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now Nicodemus was a product of his environment and a teaching of the day. And it would have been taught, it would have been understood, and maybe even taken for granted because Nicodemus is... Uh, Nicodemus was a Jew because he was in good standing, because he was uh, a Pharisee especially, that entrance into the kingdom of God was a given. That it was God's kingdom for the Jewish people. Except for those who were blasphemers and those who were caught up in vile sins or, or gross sins. But for the Jewish nation, for the, the God-fearing Jew, this would have been assumed that they would have entrance into the kingdom of God. And so you have to understand the words of Jesus is very, very abrasive to him. When he says, unless, truly, truly, his way of emphasizing something. Uh, I was thinking of my friend Doug who likes to highlight stuff in all of his books. He actually paints all of his words with yellow highlighter. Well, when you're speaking, this is the way Jesus puts yellow highlighter to what he's saying. This is important, Nicodemus. This is important, church, to say it another way, not only for Nicodemus, but for us. Unless one is born again, he cannot see or he cannot comprehend. He cannot understand or enter in, verse number five, he'll use that terminology, the kingdom of God. Now, by way of kingdom of God, there is the reality of God's kingdom displayed throughout the Bible as him being the sovereign creator over heaven and earth. God is, at this moment, seated on his throne and no force of evil, hell, no army or human invention, no demonic force can withstand his sovereign might. He is the creator of the heavens and earth, and he is bringing everything to its appointed end. He is the sovereign one, the Lord of lords, and the King of kings. We find that all through the Old Testament and all through the New Testament. He has never ceased to be God or has never ceased to be sovereign over his creation. Amen? That is a great comfort to us this morning, church. It may seem like it's out of control. It may seem chaotic, but God is working and he knows what he is doing. But here, kingdom of God in Jesus' reference is something future. It is something that is anticipated. It is reference in the minor prophets as the uh, in the major prophets as the messianic age, the time when the kingdom of God will be set up and God will will set his king upon his throne in Psalms 2. Uh, it's best understood in Daniel's vision in chapter number 2 as you see the image being or standing there with all the, the kingdoms of men being represented. And at the end of that vision, there's a rock which is hewn out of the mountain which strikes the statues and destroys it. And in the vision, the rock grows and becomes a mountain. Verse 44 gives us some insight to what that means. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all the kingdoms and bring them to an end. It shall stand forever. There is an unconquerable, undeniable, eternal kingdom which God will establish and is establishing even now. This is the kingdom Jesus is referring to. For our understanding in John's gospel, it is the, the first fruits of that kingdom, which is the salvation and the gathering together of God's people. It is the hope which awaits the people of God. It is the blessings of salvation. It is the anticipation this morning of heaven. To say it that way, 
he would be saying, truly, truly, unless you're born again, you cannot see heaven in all of its blessings and benefits, nor, in verse number 5, enter in. That is what he's saying to Nicodemus. It is not given to you by way of your merit or your ethnicity. That is not how it's granted. There must be some divine intervention. You must be born again. Now, when we look at verse number three, we see this given to us um, as a means or as a declaration of necessity. There is no other way to get to heaven. There is no option B. There is no other route that we can take. There is no avoiding this, this statement which Jesus makes. You must be, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And part of the necessity of the new birth is rooted in our own inability. It's rooted in our own limitedness. In fact, he reminds us we cannot see the kingdom, nor can we enter in. The gifts and blessings of God in his kingdom, the Bible tells us, are foolishness to those who are perishing. Paul speaks to the Corinthian church twice, one in 1 Corinthians as he speaks about the gospel, the message of Jesus Christ and him crucified. To the Gentiles, he says, it's foolishness. To the Jews, he says, it's a stumbling block. But to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. Amen. That's joyous news. But he reminds us the, the challenge that we find ourselves in in verse number 14 of chapter number 2. The natural man receives not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, neither can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. To add to that, in Second Corinthians, as he's speaking about the glory of Christ that's seen in the gospel, that transforming work of God in chapter number three, ending chapter number three, chapter number four, he says this, and if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in their case, the God of this world has blinded their minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Well, dear friends, every one of us here fall in that category one place in our life. The Bible tells us that we ourselves are at enmity with God in our lost condition. That we are by nature slaved enslaved to sin we are spiritually dead we are the natural man referred to in first corinthians we are those who are perishing referred to in second corinthians in fact if nicodemus this righteous law law seeking this tradition trying to pursue man needs to be born again then you and i most definitely likewise must be born again. There is an inability in our flesh, our sinfulness and our nature, which is against God that must be changed. But notice, I want you to notice secondly, not only do you see the inability shown to us here in verse number three, I want you to notice the new birth is a work of God's grace. And Nicodemus was a man who had an impressive Resume of religious achievements. Discipline, self-mastery, knowledge, moral man, all these things we've already referred to. Yet his achievements was far from grounds to give him confidence that he was saved. In fact, he reminds us of Paul, doesn't he, in Philippians chapter number 3, where Paul says, all the things that he took stock in, being a Benjamite, a Jew, spoke Hebrew, he was a Pharisee of Pharisees. All of these things Paul had to understand, he had to come to a place that all these things must be counted loss if he was ever to find gain of the gospel and gain in Jesus Christ. One cannot enter into heaven based upon his own righteousness and his own goodness, based upon his own merit. It is impossible. In fact, we see that in Titus 3, mentioned to us, verses 3 and 5, which Lear read to us this morning. He says, For you, or we ourselves, were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. 
Verse number four, and by the way, that's a very, that's a very unpleasant scene, isn't it? Paul doesn't say, you Cretans were that way, does he? He says, that is us, we, including himself in that. We were like that. Verse number four, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he's speaking when the gospel has come to us and the Spirit has come to us to work in us, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, That ought to be a a place where we ought to stop and say, thank you, Jesus. Because when would enough be enough? He says, we're not saved that way, but by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Not by works done uh, that we have done, but by the work of the Holy Spirit illuminating our eyes, convicting us of sin, awaking our heart to affection of Jesus Christ. It is the work of the Spirit that brings this life about. We were dead in our trespasses and sin, the Bible tells us. It is the Spirit of God who quickens us and awakens us alive, makes us alive in Christ Jesus. Dear friends, salvation is a gift of God. Regeneration and a new birth is, a, is an outworking of God's grace towards us. It is His gift towards us. So we might say that we do not, but most importantly, we cannot save ourselves this morning. Now, I don't know how that hits you. It's not the most pleasant thing to understand. But if you understand the gospel, you understand the Bible, the, the whole narrative of the Bible, you understand that we are standing in need and we are in a place where we are unable to meet that need by our own resources and our own ability. That's what Jesus is telling Nicodemus in one way, isn't he? You have a need of a new birth and this is from above. That's what he means here when he says in verse number three, you must be born again. The word is used several times later on in the Gospel of John of meaning you must be born from above. How does that work? That's what Nicodemus asks in verse number four. Doesn't he notice? You almost sympathize with Nicodemus because we would have probably been with the same questions trying to figure out how that's supposed to you know you take something out of the box and how are you supposed to get it back in the box that it came in Nicodemus here's you got to be born again and, and you can't enter into the kingdom of God surely not what Nicodemus had taught I'm sure he taught you must obey the Torah and obey the traditions of the fathers and if you want favor with God and his goodness in your life and you want the kingdom of God then you must obey all these things as he lays them out in front of people And yet here as he comes to Jesus, he himself is confronted with the reality of his own need. And so he's wrestling with that a little bit saying, how can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time in his mother's womb and be born? Well, that's just, uh, that's just impossible. Some suggest Nicodemus is trying to say here, um, how can a man who's set in his ways... A man who is old and already have the pattern of life set. How can he change his ways? Isn't he he who he is? Can he change? That may be something of what he's saying here as he's coming. But there is a sense of his own confusion seen in this. How does it work, Jesus? How are we born again? Well, he shows us in verse number five. He's restating for clarity for Nicodemus trying to kind of coach him along a little bit and jesus answered truly truly again affirming i say to you unless one is born of water and the spirit he cannot enter the kingdom of god emphatically jesus again asserts that you must be born again it's the same as being born of water and spirit as some suggest here he's referring to nicodemus's need to be baptized That would have been at least thought with the proselytes once they were baptized into Judaism, then they would be considered new babes in the faith, in the Jewish faith. I don't think that's what Jesus has in mind. Although it does mention that baptism is really 
a part or, or a symbol or a sign of something greater than just being dipped down and taken back up. It is a testimony, it is a sermon that we act out, live out in front of a congregation or in front of the world that this is what the Spirit of God does in a saint's heart. He unites them to Christ and uniting them in His death and in His resurrection. It is a declaration of our faith. But here the the water can often or also be referred to and the Spirit also referred to the work of the Holy Spirit in, uh, found in the book of Ezekiel. I was going to have you turn there, but because it's uh, probably not the most familiar book you're turning to, I'll just read the verses for you and follow along with me. Ezekiel 36. Jesus is pointing to the work of the Holy Spirit. How is one born from above? Well, one is born from above by the Holy Spirit. It's a spiritual birth. Not only is it grace of God, it's something the Holy Spirit does in us. He says in Ezekiel 36, verse 25, speaking of the new covenant, which Jesus has come to initiate through his death and resurrection, And we know that at this time of initiation, the Holy Spirit would be poured out upon all flesh and they will uh, and demonstrate the power of the Holy Spirit in them. Ezekiel 36 shows us this internal word. Verse 25, he says, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols. I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit and I will put within you. Uh, And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. How is one born again? Well, one is born again through the work of the Holy Spirit. It is he who comes to make us alive, to open our eyes to the kingdom to open our understanding. It is he who comes to to soften our hearts that we might love him, love Christ. It is he who comes to direct our wills that we may follow him. It is the work of the Holy Spirit. But I want you to notice in Ezekiel, and I think even referred to here in John, not only is it a spiritual birth, it is a birth given to us by God's grace, it is a necessary birth, but it is also a birth that is associated with transformation. You see that here he speaks about being sprinkled clean with water, which is the work of the Holy Spirit purifying us from our defilements. It's a ceremonial cleansing, at least what you see laid out here in Ezekiel, but it's what the Spirit of God does within us. But notice the transformation would take place. He's he's cleaning them from their past sins of idolatry and their rebellion against God. In verse number 26 of Ezekiel, he says, I will give you a new heart. Why? Because the old one's broken. Doesn't work. There's no life in it. Verse later on or later on in the verse, he says, I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Now, what does a stony heart refer to? What does it bring to your mind? Sometimes we tell, we say of people, we probably don't say it to their face. Maybe you do say that to their face. You're cold-hearted. And, and so we kind of know what that means. There's no love, no pity, no compassion. I mean, when it comes to emotions, you're just dead. Is that kind of what we mean by that? I think some of you agree with that. The rest of you are wondering. Well, notice here that Jesus and Ezekiel is bringing us to this realization of what God has done to the Holy Spirit. That heart which was against God, hardened against his will and hardened against his rules. Their affections in Israel always went after false gods and false idols. They were set in their ways, unbendable. They were stiff-necked, to use another expression. They were set on sin and they were going to have it their way. There was no tenderness or affection towards God. There was no pliability towards God's will or way in surrendering to him. They were not only set in their ways, but they were lifeless. 
And someone has a stone heart, we would almost say that of them. If, if their heart is not beating and warm and, and blood flowing through that, we would say they were lifeless. And in like fashion, we are spiritually lifeless before God. God says, this is what I will do for Israel. And not just Israel, all those who come to Christ, all those who have been saved by him have been a recipient of this kind of grace. And if you question that, go to Hebrews, and he talks about that work as well. And he takes out that heart of stone, untender towards God and God's ways, and he gives us a heart of flesh, takes out the lifelessness and gives us affection and love, obedience to Christ, beating and warm that we may walk in his ways and don't you think that's that's not what peter means when he says that 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 jesus whom we have not seen yet we love where does that love and affection that desire to glorify him and follow him where does all of that where does this all begin well it begins with the spirit of god's work in us it begins at that new birth Because we're given a new desire and a will that seeks after God. Now Paul means that same thing as we get to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And you're very familiar with these verses. The Bible tells us that if anyone is in Christ, he is a what? How is he a new creation? Because he has been born again. He is a completely new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All of this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself. Nicodemus must be born again. You this morning must be born again, or you cannot enter the kingdom of God. It is necessary. It is a gift of God's grace. It is a spiritual birth and it is a transforming work of the power of God in the heart and soul of man. And Nicodemus comes to this and maybe you come to this teaching as well sometimes or maybe even now with a bit of confusion. How many of you ever been confused? You go in the gas station, you knew you were getting something, and you're looking at the refrigerator, and you're thinking, what I come in here for? Maybe you go to the kitchen, and you're like, what am I doing in the kitchen, you know? I kind of feel like Nicodemus had, you know, some of you, and I'm like that too, you can really read like a book. You can tell by the expressions on your face what's going on. One of the interesting things about preaching is I get to see your faces as, and see your confusion and your tiredness. And all the other stuff that you have going on in your life. I read that sometimes. Sometimes it helps me, other times not. You have to know that Nicodemus is sitting here with his mouth open, looking at him like, what in the world are you talking about? In fact, he asked this question after Jesus says, you must be born of the Spirit. One is born of water and of the Spirit. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. In other words, I'm talking about a heavenly work. I'm talking about the... Uh, something other than your natural birth. You need something more than just being Jewish, Nicodemus. You need something more than just all of your achievements. You need the grace of God displayed powerfully in your life or you're not making it. That's the same message that we have to, to hear today. We, we need to hear. That's the same message that the world needs to hear that on your own, in your own efforts and in your own work, you're not going to make it. You will not enter into the kingdom of God. You must be born again. You must have this transformation. Jesus continues in verse number 7 almost of saying, Don't be amazed. Close your mouth. Don't be amazed that I say to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. So the Spirit of God is like the wind. There is an element of mystery here. It shows the sovereignty of the work of the Holy Spirit. It also shows the mystery of the work of the Holy Spirit. We can see the effect of the wind, but you can't see the wind. You see the power and the impact of the wind, but you can't see the wind. Jesus is, is saying that in... It's the way it is with the new birth. We are transformed. We can see the effect of the Holy Spirit, but we don't see him. 
Verse number 9, Nicodemus in his confusion says, How can these things be? I've never been interrupted in the middle of a sermon. Maybe I probably already experienced that once, uh, just to have experienced it. Peter is preaching on the day of Pentecost and in the middle of his sermon while he's preaching about all these things. By the way, you guys killed Jesus. You and the Romans cohorted together to do what God has determined you to do. And you murdered the Son of God. I mean, it's a pretty strong indictment. There, somewhere in the process of the sermon, the guy goes, so what do we do? It's kind of the question I think Nicodemus is asking here. Uh, when he says, how can these things be? And Jesus unearths a problem in Nicodemus and, and really a problem that's within us. And in unearthing that confusion, he points us to the comfort that's found in the last two verses. Notice he says, this should not surprise you, Nicodemus. You're a smart man. Verse number 10, you're the teacher in Israel and don't you understand these things? All I did was give you an exposition of Ezekiel 36 and 37 and don't you get it? Don't you see? Aren't you anticipating what the Messianic age is going to be like? And his problem is, he goes on to say, is because you have not received me in my testimony so you cannot understand. Notice verse number 11. Truly, truly, I say to you, and you speak of what we know, and we bear witness of what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. So what is it Nicodemus hasn't received? The reality, the significance of who Jesus was. We know God is with you. We know you're a teacher, even equal. You're a rabbi, I'm a rabbi. Let's talk shop. But he could not fathom the depth of the reality of Jesus, the Son of Man, the Son of God, in his magnitude coming from the Father, the incarnate Word. He, he did not receive his testimony about himself. He did not deny the miraculous signs. He didn't deny there's, there's some cool things or some neat things in there. But what he denied was Jesus was who he said he was. And there's a multitude of people standing outside of the church and even inside the church during the service. They, they continue to stand in confusion about the Christian faith because they have not come to clarity in who Jesus is. Until that is settled in your life, until that is made clear, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. Why do I say that? Because the Bible says he is the door and the way and the truth and the life. No man can come to the Father except through him. Nicodemus, you'll stay in your confusion. You'll stay in your inability. You'll not experience this new birth because you have not come to grips with the reality of who he is. You have not received our testimony. In fact, he goes back to this basic understanding. Verse number 12, I told you just basic things, earthly things. I mean, I'm speaking to you in, with crayons, Nicodemus. I got my little graft here, my flannel board, my pictures up. Some of you I had Sunday school like that when you was a kid. I mean, that was the way to go growing up. Except they were always crooked on the board. I didn't appreciate that. But nevertheless, maybe I was crooked. He said, I've told you these earthly things and you haven't understood it. How am I going to tell you anything else about the kingdom of God if you can't get past this? In fact, Verse 13 is somewhat of an enigma. It's kind of odd, strange. There no one's ascended into heaven except for he who's descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And some suggest what Jesus is saying here. There are some who believe that, uh, that people have ascended into heaven to receive some kind of special revelation to come down and speak of people. And, and Jesus says that's not the case. never has happened. God has always come to man with revelation. He said it's a fact. He has not received anything, ascending up into heaven to receive anything. He is the one who has come down from heaven. But he brings us to 14 to a word of comfort to us. Nicodemus is struggling with the abstract truth of what it means to be born again, what it means to be saved, what it means to enter into the kingdom of God. So Jesus speaks to him as plainly and simply as he can speak to him and us this morning. And he says, you remember Moses? The children of Israel in the wilderness. 
Uh, the children of Israel in the wilderness, if you've read through that any time recently, you'll realize they are very dysfunctional people, much like us. One day they're happy, their belly's full. The next day they're saying, God, you sent us out here to die. I think that was their way of praying. Maybe they thought that was the way you modeled prayers. God constantly judged the children of Israel in their journey, in the, in the wilderness journey. In this case in particular, he sent serpents among them to judge them for their sinfulness and their rebellion against him, their disobedience. Fiery serpents, as they're referred to in the Old Testament, would strike them and they would die from the poison naturally. And uh, some of you say that's why you live up here year-round because there's no poisonous snakes. The children of Israel repent, plead to Moses to pray to God, give us help, deliver us. Have God remove these snakes from our midst. What does God do? Tells Moses to take a staff that's made of bronze and take a snake and have a snake fashioned around it like the snakes that are there and among them and have it lifted up in the middle of the camp and publish this word. That, that whoever having been bitten by this snake based upon their own rebellion and sin against God who has the sentence of death on their life, if they simply look to this serpent on a pole, then they will live. They will be given new life. Nicodemus would have been familiar with that. And what he is telling Nicodemus, you, you recall that, you understand that, that new lease on life that God gave these children of Israel who were rebellious and unworthy of it, and yet God in his grace provided this. If you're looking for life, Nicodemus, then the Son of Man will be lifted up, and you must look for it in him or in me. At the end of the verse, not only as he was lifted up in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, speaking to his death on the cross. He would be lifted up on that hillside for all passerbys to, to come and see. And what he's saying is, Nicodemus, those who have the sentence of death on them, if they would but look, if they would put their faith and trust and belief, if they would, if they would obey that command to look and live, then they would find everlasting Life. That's what he says in verse number 15, isn't it? That whoever believes in him may have what? Nicodemus, you may not understand the ins and outs of the kingdom of God at this point, but you will, you must look to Christ if you are to seek to have everlasting life. That is the same message for you this morning. You must be born again. You must be born again. And if you wrestle with what that means, the solution is found in here. What must we do at the end of the day? What must we do at this moment? We must look to the Son of God and the work He did for us on Calvary, and we must believe. That's what He says in verse 14 and 15, isn't it? And the promise is in the verses that those who believe, those who look, those who who believe in him may have, will have everlasting life. I am so thankful that God has, in the gospel, made things so simple. Aren't you? I get confused easy. And sometimes because of its simplicity... And because it brings us to a place where we're completely dependent upon God to be our rescuer, it's so hard. Because here a man who has all of the pedigree that, that one could ever hope to attain to in the Jewish religion, have all of the standing and respect and, and all of the, the things that would, would kind of strengthen you, when it comes to thinking about your place with God, one like him must also or likewise look to Jesus or he will die under the weight and curse of sin and his own self-righteousness. D.A. Carson is helpful in his commentary on this, saying that verse 14 and 15 is an answer to Nicodemus' questions.
How can this happen? The kingdom of God is seen and or entered. New birth is experienced and eternal life begins through the saving cross work of Christ received by faith. Dear people, as you come this morning, have you ever put your faith and trust in Christ? Have you ever looked to him and lived? Have you ever trusted him for the forgiveness of your sins? Have you ever turned to him, putting your faith in him for the salvation of your soul? Have you ever been to Calvary, humbled and broken over your sin and found there a sweet and and ready Savior to redeem you? You must be born again. How? Well, the answer is found in Christ at the cross. Those of you who have a testimony have been saved for years, let me just ask you, do you still believe in Jesus? Is he still the one that you're clinging on to for everlasting life? Is he still the solution and the hope and the anticipation of your heart's desire? Don't you love that he's not only good and sufficient in saving us, but he's good and sufficient of being consistent throughout our journey here and our sanctification. Well, again, I close with that remark that Jesus left Nicodemus truly, truly. Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. You are called, encouraged, told where you may have confidence of this new birth and it's found at the foot of Calvary in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Bow with me. Father, we thank you for this morning. We can gather together. Thank you for your grace to us. You are a good, good God, a good, good Savior. Thank you for the gift of forgiveness, reconciliation. And God, I pray those here, any here this morning that is at enmity, even now, Lord, that you would, through the power of the Holy Spirit, through conviction, Lord, bring them to a place of surrender. Come, Come to Christ. Lord, let Christ be exalted in the redeeming of their souls even today. I pray for those who are struggling and and being challenged in their faith and the wall to be encouraged and renewed this morning, even as we're reminded of what you did for us, all the lavishness of your grace. Oh, we can come just as we are as the song we sung, Lord, but what a glorious reminder. You do not leave us as we are, but you transform us and are transforming us into the image of Christ. In Jesus' name. Amen.